Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with Plush Care. Plush Care accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. I'm Mike Boris and this is Straight Talk. Mainstream media hasn't done their job for women when it comes to sports coverage. And at times it's pretty pathetic locally and internationally. Female athletes across the field, all fields, struggle to have their stories told like their male counterparts. Chloe Dalton is a triple code athlete, so that's Australian rules football, rugby union and basketball. At the moment, she represents GWS in the AFL Women's League. Chloe is sick of women being sidelined when it comes to sport coverage and has established the Female Athlete Project. It's a podcast. It's platforming athletes at the top of their game. For me personally, I can't see any logic whatsoever in the disparity between female and male coverage, particularly when it comes to what's interesting in relation to the game. It doesn't make any sense to me as a business guy when there's a lot of demand out there to watch female sport, pretty much equivalent to watching male sport. And it's not like this conversation has not been had before, but we have to keep having them until this changes. So it's time for No Bullshit with Chloe Dalton, and she's a superstar. Chloe Dalton, welcome to Straight Talk. Thank you for having me. Right, well, we know you're a sports person, um, but I want to peel it back a little bit. Uh, you're a PLC girl from the Northern Beaches. Uh, long way to travel to PLC from the Northern Beaches. I know one's up in Pimble and Northern Beaches are sort of that direction, but like we, how far Northern Beach are we talking about? Manly or are we talking about, uh, you know, Mona Vale or uh, something like that? Mona Vale Mona was Vale. the spot. Well, it's not that far from Pimble then, is it? Yeah, it was kind of straight up Mona Vale Road, but yeah. there was there was a big group of us that would jump on the bus pretty early in the morning to get yeah, to school. Yeah, sort of going inland though. <laughs> yeah, it is <laughs> far away from yeah. the beach. A long way from the beach. <laughs> and 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 did you did you start for PLC as a young kid? Because I mean, let's let's face it, it's a really highbrow. I'm not taking anything away from it, but it is a highbrow ladies' college. PLC Pimble Ladies College. Um, it is highbrow. Um, it's sort of like um, you know. It's a very good school, great reputation, expensive as hell. Um, did you always go there? I went to school called Oxford Falls up until year 10. Right. And I loved sport and I I decided that I wanted to be a physio, so I knew that I had to get a pretty good ATAR at that point in time and, and mum and dad and I had a bit of a chat and we looked at PLC as the first option. So I went there for year 11 and 12 and it was it was an interesting experience for me. I'd been at this small co-ed school to go to this school that then had 240 girls in my grade and it was almost like its own suburb. It's so big, that school and the facilities were incredible. So it was a, it took a little while to adapt to it. Well, actually to me, like I actually, 
got uh, married on at the PLC chapel to my second wife. Um, and uh, it was like a kingdom. It's a good description. Or, or a queendom or something like that. But it was <laughs> I think like it should some, be queen. <laughs> but it, it, was, it was like awe-inspiring uh, joint. Like it was full on, everything. It has all the facilities and like nothing I'd ever seen before. Mm. Like I'm a kid from West Suburbs. Like to me, it seems like, what the hell? Uh, it's own church, everything. Uh, was it daunting for you? Yes. Yeah, I was... I was pretty quiet back then as well. So I think to walk into a place like that, I was, I was really aware of how fortunate I was to go to a school like that. Um, but to walk in and not know anybody at all and to have thousands of girls running around was, was pretty daunting. I was pretty comfortable once I eventually found my group of friends and people that I connected with. Then I started to feel more settled and, and got to know people and felt like, I was more comfortable at school, but it was, yeah. I, I don't know girls, but boys, you know, you've got your gang sort of thing, your mates, and uh, it's a pretty hard thing to pull away from that. How yeah. You, I mean, that was a pretty mature decision. Talk to your parents, want to do physio, become a physiotherapist, as we talk about. Yeah, that's a big deal. It was a big deal. I've probably always been very driven in what I wanted to achieve, and so even with my sport, I was playing basketball at the time. And at Oxford Falls, the school I was at, because it was quite small, there'd be maybe one one team for the girls to play basketball. And then I get to PLC and there's 38 girls teams <laughs> playing basketball. Serious? And it was really cool to see that I went into this environment that was an all-girls school, but sport was something that was a huge part of it. I think growing up as a little kid, sport was often like, I when I was in PE, when I was a younger kid at school, I was always playing against the boys. I was ridiculously competitive. And it would just be me against the boys kind of thing. So it was a really cool experience to then see so many girls playing sport. Is that because uh, at the other school, Oxford Falls, is because not many girls are playing sports because they're they're given the option whether they want to or they don't want to. Mm. Whereas at PLC, you've got to play some sport. Is that a rule? Do you have to play sport or is it considered – because it's a highly competitive environment Um, or is it's not – well, maybe it's not – that you have to play sport, but everybody does play sport because it's expected of them that they're competitors. Is that what we're talking about here? Yeah. To be honest, I don't know if there's a rule because I played every sport I could, so I, do, I, I was never in the position of being told you have to play a sport, you know what I mean? But there, there was definitely an expectation and it was, it was almost part of the culture of the school, which I really enjoyed. It was everyone did Saturday sport, you went to training at lunch or after school, whatever it was, and even girls who weren't, overly sporty or overly talented got involved in it for the social aspects of it too, which I think is lacking probably in a lot of co-ed schools. Is it just so the girls can hang out though? Is that what you're talking about? Or is it because they're saying shit word use, but empowering them saying you can do this, like not necessarily saying it to them, but sort of suggesting it to them? Mm, Yeah, I would, I would definitely agree. I think regardless of what division or what level they were in, there was always that element of competitiveness. Even if they were doing it for social reasons, I don't think they were going to have a laugh and sit down and have a picnic in the park. Like there was still competitiveness across the board. I think that was evident in the sport side of things and also in study exams. There was this real underlying sense of competitiveness across the board at the school. Your parents obviously empowered you as a kid. You know, they gave you that platform to back yourself to go to somewhere like PLC. I mean, did they pay for it or did you win a scholarship? 
I was on scholarship, on scholarship. sports scholarship. But, but still, they, they helped you get there and encouraged you to get there, that sort of stuff. So not everybody gets that from their parents, boy or girl, by the way. Um, once you get to a school like that, though, it's sort of endemic. It's part of the system and you see everybody else doing it. But that's unusual. That's not the normal school. No, it's not. And when I got there and, as I mentioned, about the 38 basketball teams, that kind of blew my mind. And I was like, this is, this is really special. Was it intimidating? I don't think it was intimidating. I think it, it probably took me back to being a little kid. And as a young girl, there were so many things around me that without people saying it out loud, so many different factors and influences, I would, I would go down and watch my, young, uh, my younger brother, my older brother play rugby at our local footy club. And there were never any girls playing. And I wouldn't really see women on sport uh, on TV playing sport a huge amount. And so to see this huge volume of girls who wanted to play sport just at school, to see so many of them kind of challenge this idea I'd had in my mind that, that girls shouldn't play sport, that there's never enough girls to play sport. And, and going back to that idea around me always having to play against the boys because a lot of girls were in, in a co-ed school where I was previously were intimidated by the boys and felt like they had to live up to this idea of sitting on the sideline looking pretty. And cheering. Yeah. Yeah. Whereas you're off to PLC, it's ran the other way. Um, I want my brother to come along and my dad, you cheer me. Mm-hmm. Did that form anything within your character, that experience? Me playing against the boys at school as a kid was, a, I guess, another part of me playing against my brothers in the backyard as a little kid. Like I – from as young as I can remember, we'd go out in the backyard, backyard cricket, touch footy, basketball, whatever it was. And it was often me and my older brother just playing one-on-one and we were two of the most competitive people alive. And we just would, we would go at it all day long. And he often would try and change the rules. If I ever was getting close to beating him, he changed the rules at the last minute. And I did, I was not happy about it. I chased him around the backyard with a cricket bat on multiple <laughs> occasions. Um, but it probably developed what I already feel like was an inherent competitiveness and desire to be the best at what I was doing. It also taught me that I could match it with the boys too. When I was playing um, at school against the boys in PE, I would go pretty hard. And some of them, I think probably found it a bit intimidating at times because a girl shouldn't be good at sport in their head. That's kind of what they'd been told. That's kind of, they'd form this attitude based on what they'd seen, that girls are, girls are never going to be as good at, at sport as what boys are. And so that for me was a – I probably was learning at the time without realising it that I can actually match it with the boys. And then I moved to PLC and I see all of these girls playing sport, loving sport, because they're told that it's important and it actually develops different skills and, and different characteristics – and a really cool experience since I've left school during COVID, I went back to coach at Pimble. I coached rugby and, and a bit of AFL as well. And when I was at school, I graduated in 2011. And being a girls' school, rugby wasn't allowed. AFL wasn't allowed because they were contact sports and tackle and, and girls shouldn't be playing those. Fast forward 10 years, they've similar story with the basketball. They've now got multiple teams of these girls who love to play rugby. And and are they playing AFL as well? Yeah. Yep. So they've got AFL, um, got r- rugby. Um, 
no doubt they've got cricket and I know they've got rowing, which has always been considered prior to this, like prior to more recently, a, a man's sort of a sport because it's, you know, big rowers that jump in there with their scungies on, you know, like in the surf club and that sort of stuff. And you never, you never used to see women do it, but there's no reason why a woman can't row. Um, in, in, like no, no problem whatsoever. You, you can come across to me as quite a, you're quiet, but uh, there's a, a deep fierceness in there somewhere. <laughs> do you feel that? Mm. Probably a good summary of me as a person. I'm I'm pretty quiet, but I've always known that I've had that in me. Um, when I was seven years old, I watched Kathy Freeman at the Sydney Olympics. How good was that? I was there actually in the 400. Amazing. Yeah, when she had the suit on. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. And as a seven-year-old kid, I just was so engrossed in this moment where she zipped up her bodysuit and and put her hood on and she ran with the weight of an entire country on her shoulders and performed under that pressure. And so I decided in that moment that I really wanted to win my own Olympic gold medal. And mum did scrapbooking at the time. And so she had all the photos and things from cross country and, and all my different sports. And there's this little piece of cardboard and I wrote on it, my biggest dream is to stand on top of the Olympic podium with a gold medal around my neck, smiling the biggest smile I've ever made. And that, I feel like that moment kind of changed the course of my life. And I had this, this unrelenting desire to get to the Olympic games and to win a gold medal. And I, I feel like a lot of the decisions I made, even as a young person, allow me to get to that point. And, and with the role of people like my parents who from the very beginning believed that I had the ability to do that and and gave me the opportunity and put me in situations that allowed me to keep working towards that. Can anybody do that? I've never been asked that before. I don't know if anybody can do it. I think the right person can do it. I think I've got a unique set of skills and characteristics in terms of mental resilience that I've developed over many years. But I also acknowledge how fortunate I was to find myself in situations kind of right place at the right time. So when I made the decision to, I was playing basketball, when I made the decision to switch to rugby sevens, I went into Google and I typed in list of Olympic sports and I had a look and I saw rugby sevens was going to be in Rio for the first time. So I, I, I went across and at the time Australian rugby were, were going out and scouting for athletes from a range of different sports because they wanted to qualify for the Olympics and they wanted to win a gold medal. So it was part of this really unique point in time where I could actually come into an elite national program that was catering for people who hadn't played this sport before. So I wasn't traditionally a rugby player and if I had been, then I could have slotted in, but because I wasn't, and so many other people in the team were not rugby players. I'm really fortunate in terms of the timing of how it all worked. If we could make an assumption that opportunities exist, like mm-hmm. an opportunity existed for you, if someone was able to garner the intention they wanted to represent Australia on the highest stage, like Kathy Freeman, do they have to have the talent before they can achieve this? Or do you think they can actually become that person that you're, you desired to be, that you dreamt about being, that you were? Uh, Motivated by Kathy, Kathy Freeman to be. I think you can become that person. I think if you have the right work ethic and the drive to do it, I'm a big believer that you can develop the skills and traits to become that person. And how much of that is about people believing in you or you believing in yourself? 
it takes me back to when I was a little kid and I did cross country and I was pretty, I was pretty good at it. I, I won the national championships when I was 11 years old and I went back the following year, qualified for nationals and flew to Adelaide. I think it was with mum as a 12 year old, woke up on the day of the race and I was, I pretended that I was sick. I said to mum, I'm sick. I can't run. I can't do it. I was so overwhelmed by this fear of expectation of what other people wanted me to do. I was so afraid that my family and my friends expected me to win again, that I, I didn't even want to run. And I, I ended up running and I came 17th or, or something around a, a bad time for me because I almost psyched myself out. And after that, I kind of moved into team sports, which is where I, I found I, I felt like I belonged there. And the level of expectation was almost spread across players shared. in the team. It was shared. Yeah. Um, but as I've grown and, and the more I've played sport, I've come to understand that my biggest driver is my belief in myself. I've played three different sports now professionally throughout my career and I've kind of put myself in the deep end in terms of not even knowing I went and played AFLW. I've, I haven't really watched the game. I didn't even really know the rules. But I have this deep sense of belief in my ability and I know that I don't like not being good at things. So I know that if I put myself in the situation, I'll do everything I can to be good at it. So the 12-year-old girl, what changed? So Because that's a point where everyone believes in you so much that it becomes pressure. Mm. And the belief of everybody else becomes an expectation and you can easily just slip it a little bit and that expectation becomes overwhelming. How does one achieve the balance of those two things in order to perform the best because you didn't perform your best on the day because you overwhelmed yourself in the end mm-hmm. um, because you didn't have enough self-belief. Mm. Because I, I was, because I think, why I say this is uh, there's a guy, and I don't know when this is going to go to where, but there's a guy I know who's a very good heavyweight boxer, a young fella, um, when I say young fella, relatively speaking, <laughs> and uh, he should have gone to the Olympics recently with Tokyo. He should have gone to the Commonwealth Games before that. But he had a few things in his life that were a little bit ordinary that he, he stuffed up basically. And he said to me today, he's actually fighting tonight on the Sonny Bill Williams card. And if he said to me, um, you know, I said, look, that's the best you've ever looked. You know, like he, he looks great. And I said to him, well, I, um, I believe in you. And he wrote back, look, thanks for your support all these years. Blah, blah, blah. And uh, I wrote back to him and said, but mate, it doesn't matter whether I believe in you now. It's about you believing in yourself. You've got to believe in yourself now. And that self-belief thing, unfortunately for women, that's you just said it earlier, girls are expected because that's the belief that they have in themselves as a result of everyone else's belief. How do we manage this now? Like how did you manage it from a 12-year-old girl? How did you go from a 12-year-old girl who didn't believe in herself to becoming the person you are now, always believing in yourself? Mm. How do, how, and how do we um, make that? like across the board, how do we make that a tool that's really understandable and deliverable to everybody? Yeah. I think a huge part of it was being a part of that Rugby Sevens program that went to the Rio Olympics. We went in as gold medal favourites because we'd won um, the world championships that year and Australia hadn't won a gold medal in a team sport since 2004, I think it was the men's hockey and women was 2000 in the water polo. So there was a lot of talk around the fact that we were kind of going to hopefully be the gold medal girls. And we made a decision as a group to embrace the pressure 
we decided we weren't going to shy away from the fact that we were hoping to go and win a gold medal. It was part of our everyday language. Every single training session, we'd get to the end of the day and we'd assess whether what we had done was worthy of winning an Olympic gold medal. And so for me, it was this really interesting lesson in in being quite outspoken and vocal about what you were trying to achieve and not shying away from it. Because I think when I was that, that 12-year-old, I wouldn't have ever been able to say, I want to win nationals again, because I was so afraid of what would happen if I didn't win. It was this really cool lesson to learn, okay, this is, I'm saying out loud what I want to do, but I'm also backing the amount of preparation I've put in to get to this point. I have so much confidence in my ability because I've built it up over years and years and years of really hard work. And now when I go out and compete, I actually can distinguish what I'm trying to do and and the belief and expectation I have on myself. And rather than people who are watching me and, and my close family and friends expecting a huge amount of me, I now can understand that they get a lot of joy out of it. There's not expectation from them. They actually, they actually enjoy watching me be the best at what I do and they enjoy seeing me get joy out of what I do. Yeah, that's a, in other words, they're not sitting back saying, where's your result? Why didn't you win? It doesn't really matter as long as you, have, you enjoy yourself or you feel better as a result of having done what you're doing mm-hmm. as, after all the exercise and training and all the other episodes. That, that's quite an interesting analysis for people to understand that it is take move it away from expectation to them sort of swimming in my own joy or whatever it is, my own feelings of success, et cetera, mm-hmm. just by doing the sport. You said something really interesting. You said you go out and um, talk about it, vocal about what you and the team were doing in mm-hmm. terms of training. What does that mean? Do you mean you actually sit around and verbalise it to each other? Where are we going to win this or we're going to do really well? What does that mean? Yeah, a big part of that as a group um, with our coaching staff and teammates we would sit down and, and actually talk about we're going to the Olympics to win an Olympic gold medal. We're not going there to win any medal. We're not going there just to compete. And so we had um, past Olympians come and, come and chat to us and we had Nat Cook, beach volleyballer, come and chat to us and, and kind of show us her gold medal. And they were really similar. Uh, Nat and Kerry Potas would, would paint the nails gold. They had things in their bathroom that was gold-coloured. They had all of these different elements of reminding themselves. And so we kind of took on board things like that from people who'd been successful in the past. And we then rated our performance each day on that. And every time we'd we'd do an opposition analysis about New Zealand or about France or a team that we were going to play against. One of my favorite things actually to look back on is, is with my coach at the time, I was the kicker. So after you score a try in rugby sevens, you have to drop uh, drop kick to convert to get an extra two points. And we would set up these scenarios. And so my coach would, would pick a point on the ground. He'd say, all right, Chloe, you've got to kick it from here. We're against New Zealand in the gold medal match. We're down 19, 18. You've got to kick the goal to win the gold medal. And my teammates would then line up in a tunnel around me and make as much noise as they possibly could, distract me as much as they possibly could. And I had to then kick the goal. And it was this really cool way of preparing us for the real pressure, it wasn't nearly as as close as what the real pressure of playing an Olympic gold medal match is, but it was a cool way to prepare us. This is what you need to do if you want to go out there and win it. I find it interesting that the vocalization of of you know 
what you are expecting of yourself or what you think you can deliver when you go to the Olympics. And as you said, it's not just vocalization, it's also visualization, like, you know, goal this, goal that. You mentioned Kerry Potter, so that she'd have the the um, volleyballers, the two volleyballers you mentioned that have things in their home or whatever it is, like stuff to remind them of what their mission is. That single-mindedness is pretty crazy. And you can't do that for a long period of time because, you know, there are other things in your life you have to prioritise. I know that, uh, like, I've interviewed a few boxers. I had George Cambosis here who talked recently about winning the all the belts in the lightweight division, and and I know he does that, and he does it on uh, Instagram too, by the way, and uh, and he's sort of like vocalising it to an audience. But I always thought to myself, I wonder if he's actually really just telling himself. The vocalisation of it was more the collective belief. I know for me as an individual it made a huge difference because I knew we were all on the same page. I haven't been in another team environment like that where I knew that when we went out there that every single person who was on the field with me was working towards the exact same goal and had so much confidence in our ability to do it. It was a really unique position to be in. And I think because I had belief in them and I know they felt the same way towards me and every other teammate, it then reinforced this vocalization of we're going to win a gold medal and that's what we're going out there to do. You're quite a vocal person when it comes to equal pay, for example, in relation to women in sport. It's sort of like a movement to some extent, to me anyway, by what I see. Why do you think women haven't been paid equally? I mean, what's the, what are the dynamics? What are the inputs as to why women have not been paid equal to what men have been paid in the game of entertainment? That's really what it is. Mm. Why do you think that is? I think it's been probably a systemic issue for decades and decades and decades where if I go back to the example of me being a young kid, I didn't ever really see women on TV. I didn't read about them in the newspaper. I didn't hear any news about women's sport on the radio because there were women playing sport probably at a a community level. There were obviously women representing our country at at things like the Olympics and, and world championships, but it wasn't really a big part of our domestic leagues. If you look at um, rugby league, AFL, soccer, all of those kind of things. They, they were starting to progress at, at a lower level. A lot of the time there were decisions being made that actually kept women out of those conversations. So women weren't actually given the ability to compete at that level. We've only seen the professionalism of these women's sporting leagues within the past decade. That's been put in place. I'm now playing in the AFL women's competition, which is still a part-time competition. It's in its sixth year and girls still have full-time jobs during the day and then go to training and are paid a part-time salary to train between the hours of 5 and 10 p.m. at night, and then we go out and play. We're then compared to male AFL players who've, who've spent their whole lives, if you picture them as a five- or six-year-old kid, they go through Kick. If they're talented, then they, then they get selected. They go through academies. They've got access to the, the best coaches, the best facilities, the best medical staff. And money. Money, all of those things, so that when they actually get to a – a professional program that's a full-time program they paid hundreds of thousands of dollars they have had throughout their entire life access to all of these things that enables them to then perform to this really elite level i think a lot of the time the men's game and the women's game across a whole range of sports are compared i, I read so many comments off the back of newspaper articles and in social media and it's the, the women don't kick as many goals as the men the standard's not as high they're not as good and it doesn't actually really take into account the factors that have led to that point. A really big component of that for me is to allow women to be full-time athletes, to allow them to actually devote themselves to their sport rather than 
going to work. Some of, some of my teammates are, are carpenters or landscapers and they rock up to training already exhausted, physically exhausted <laughs> and are then expected to train and compete to this really elite level. It's, it's mismatched. The expectation is mismatched with, with the level of professionalism and, and the level of access that these female athletes have had for a really long time. I would say in relation to that, as being on a board of one of the so-called elite rugby league clubs in, in Australia, the Roosters, and me being there for 20 years, um, I wish our players were carpenters and did have jobs because at the end of it, when it's all over, they've got nowhere to go. And in fact, one of the things we insist on is that they younger people, younger ones, that they must do some other trade or apprenticeship or university or something along those lines. Now we now we now do that um, because I actually think it's a jewelry isn't a gift you give just once. It's a way to remind your loved one of a beautiful moment every time they see it. Blue Nile can help you find the gift that says how you feel and says it beautifully with expert guidance and a wide assortment of jewelry of the highest quality at the best price. Go to BlueNile.com and experience the convenience of shopping Blue Nile, the original online jeweler since 1999. That's BlueNile.com to find the perfect jewelry gift for any occasion. BlueNile.com. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. It's unfair that you don't get paid the same amount of money. But at the same time, I think it's a good thing that you could be great if men and women could all have some other job even if they just spent half a day, four or five hours or, or three days a week or something doing it because we, I think, has, as spectators who get a bit of a big advantage out of the entertainment, um, we have an obligation, I think, to make sure that they're suited up for the rest of their lives post-sport. Not everyone's going to become a commentator, <laughs> not many at all. Yeah, there's <laughs> only a select few. Totally. And, uh, well, because, I mean, I, I, I was just thinking in the NRLW, um, you're right, um, we, there's, only, there's only four teams in it up, up until recently. There's a couple of teams now. And, um, you know, the NRL itself never gave us enough money um, to our club. We're one of the few clubs that had a, a female team. And, um, and we also, it was a budgetary thing because, you know, we're on salary caps and every other damn thing and, uh, you know, we, it, it's it's a it becomes a money thing. Then all of a sudden you start to allocate. We as a club we're allocating the money that we had to our elite male players because that's where we're getting most of our revenue from. We, we're getting it through the the people who go to the game. But there's no real. I don't think there's any real logic why a female athlete is any less interesting to watch than a male athlete or a female athletic team, footballers or whatever it is. Is any less interesting than a male athletic team to watch? Mm. Um, I don't think personally. I I can't see any logic, except it's always been the way, and that's not logic to me. It's always been the way, and uh, and I think your what you said makes sense. It's a systemic thing. It's a system that was established, um, and the governing bodies of the system were male, 
And the governing bodies of the system always have done a certain thing and they just continue to do a certain thing because with the greatest respect is they're just too lazy about thinking about doing something else because it's worked and, you know, you can draw sponsors and TV rights and all that sort of other stuff. But there's no real logic from a consumer's point of view for me mm. to watch if a female rugby union, rugby league, AFL, I'm not really an AFL supporter so I don't understand. I don't watch AFL much. But cricket, a female cricket, I think it's fantastic. Like the Australian cricket side is female, so good, like ridiculously good mm-hmm. uh, relative to the rest of the world. Um, it's just it's crazy. Um, um, I, I just don't – like I, I know swimmers, like Dawn Fraser, for example, I saw Dawn the other day. Like, man, what a swimmer. Like what a competitor. What a – not only just a great competitor, not only, sorry, not only just a great athlete, but an unbelievably interesting person, like fully radical, rebellious, climbing poles and nick flags and so cool, like Dawny's so good. And, uh, and by the way, survived all the shit. Like just she's 80, she told me she's 84. Like her and I have hung out in uh, France one, uh, Paris one time. We, we're both at the World uh, World Cup soccer final. Um, it was uh, uh, France was playing Brazil. France won, and uh, neither one of us could get back. We just bumped into each other at the game. We couldn't get back from the stadium back to Paris. All we wanted to do was go and have a drink. And uh, somehow we found another Aussie guy there, and some guy put us in the car and. I sat on her lap. She didn't sit on my lap. I sat on Dawny's lap. And uh, and then when we got into town in Paris, we couldn't find anywhere to get a drink. It was like midnight by the time we got back and um, both of us were on the hunt to go and have a drink. And, like, I, I, for me, I don't see any difference. I can't understand the logic as to why great female athletes, whether in a team or individual sports, aren't any more interesting or as interesting as a bloke. Like uh, there's boring females and there's boring blokes. You know, you know, like yep. am I, when I'm, I'm talking about to me personally, yeah. Um, there's boring football clubs, male and female. There's boring everything in life. You know, there's boring TV shows. Um, so I don't see any logic why it's not the case. So what the hell is holding us back? There's some just while you're chatting around that, even the the business side of it, right? About the the men bringing in more money, the there's revenue, some, yeah. yeah, the revenue side of it. There's really interesting research that's come out. That's what I've loved is there's now more data and statistics around what's happening with women's sport, which we haven't had in the past because it hasn't really been on TV. It's starting to be on TV now, so there's more broadcast deals and a whole range of things. But there's a company called True North Research, and what they look at is the emotional connection that fans have with sporting teams. And like you mentioned, the Australian women's cricket team, they've topped that list for many years. So of the Matildas, they've done an exceptional job in building their brand and their connection with their fans um, after Rio, we were, we were at the top as well, the Australian women's rugby sevens team. And so the women's teams actually often outrank the men in terms of their emotional connection with fans, in terms of trust, uh, pride in their teams and a whole range of different factors. And, and what the data is now showing is that because fans have a higher emotional connection to these women's teams, it actually means that they're more likely to, um, use a product of a sponsor that's associated with that women's team because they have trust and respect in that team. They also have that same feeling. So there's actually a greater return on investment for partners of women's teams, which is something that is really cool for someone like me to hear and and many female athletes, because so often it's this argument that I have to go back to on social media all the time of, 
No one cares about women's sport. No one watches women's sport. It doesn't bring any money. There's not enough revenue. This this whole argument of you don't deserve to be paid for what you do because but you it's don't a circular bring in. argument. It's just crazy. It do, it's not logical. It's just circular because it's always been the way it is. Correct. So they just create the circle and you just keep going around a circle. Mm-hmm. And, I, and so, but you're saying to me that there's now data and people apply science. If there's no, it, give me the logic. So if you can show me some science, which you've just explained some science off the back of data that the return on investment ROI for a sponsor in relation to favourite women's teams, for example, I'm going to say like the Matildas or something like that, um, actually gives me a better return as a sponsor, in which case the revenue numbers will be big for that particular game. And uh, as a result, the revenue numbers being big, um, that that usually should indicate that the um, organisation that's putting the dough in has looked at the audience and knows that they're going to get their message through to a big audience that comes about as a result of watching the Matildas in this example, um, then why don't the women get paid more money? How come it doesn't, it doesn't or maybe it does. I mean, because I think women's cricket just has announced that they're equal to men. I think in terms of pay, I think that's right, isn't it? Am yeah, the, the cricket are, are probably ahead of the game. I think they're number one in Australia in, in terms of the uh, their collective bargaining agreements and pay parity and things like that. I think I don't know the exact details, but I think at I least think minimum is. wage is, is definitely yeah. equal and they've got uh, match payments or bonuses that are equal. So they are, yeah, well ahead of the game in comparison to a lot of different sports in well, Australia. Will this just cure itself then, then with the affliction of time? I mean, are we in that sort of part of the curve where it's just a matter of time before everything is equalised in terms of pay, conditions, part-time, full-time, all that sort of stuff. Do you think that's going to happen? I don't know if I'd say it would cure itself. I think it's going to take a a lot of input from a whole range of different stakeholders. I think there's so many different elements that have contributed to it. Like you talk about the fact that because it's been that way for so long, it's almost having to prove this idea to people who don't believe that women should be in those arenas and don't believe that women should be equal. Seriously? That people actually think, well, they're dinosaurs, though, surely. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And it's not your generation. I mean, like. I am, I've been pretty surprised through my work with the Female Athlete Project, was, yep. which is where I do the podcast and a lot on social media around the gender equality piece. There's sadly a lot of teenage boys who come on and argue that women aren't good at sport. But you, the, you mean in the commentaries? Like yeah, in, in, in the comments. comment sections. Yeah. yeah. It's it's surprised me because I think in my head I kind of pictured those people as the dinosaurs and we kind of just had to wait for them to die out and this next generation would come through. But I think it's really shown to me that there's still so much work to be done in in a whole range of different factors around. They talk about the fact that by the time kids are four or five years old, they already start to see men as more powerful and men occupying roles like surgeons or doctors. Politicians. Yep. Versus the roles of women. And so I think it's a little bit disheartening to see that it's teenage boys making some pretty pretty disgusting comments at times about the role of women Um, because I think, unfortunately, it's still this messaging that we see all the time that, that women are seen as lesser than. It's interesting. Um, our brain naturally likes to build a story up about ourselves and where we fit into things and where others fit. And um, and I think that the story a lot of these probably these individuals have built is this story. It's it's incorrect, 
but you can, you know, because of brain plasticity, you can actually change the way someone thinks. But it takes um, th- their willingness to listen. They've got to be open to the discussion and there's got to be quite a powerful discussion continuously to change or to use plasticity of the brain to change the way they think. In other words, change their story about what society's like. Yeah, that- I think willingness is is the key word to that. I've Yeah. Because sometimes it's pretty overwhelming to read like hundreds of comments that I'm trying to monitor across things like this. And Don't so, fucking read them. Yeah, I know, right? That's, totally. Yeah. But what I've set out to do is I'm not trying to change the attitudes of these people that are never going to come around to it. I want to create a space where people who already love women's sport can celebrate it and can share it and, and can chat about their achievements. But I also want to look at these people that are kind of on the fence a little bit. That, that might not have seen a huge amount of women's sport, might not understand a huge amount about it. And we can kind of start this discussion in a really positive way, not me coming out and being like, women are treated unfairly, this, this, this. Yeah, you don't it's, need to be bullshy. Yeah. It's, it's hey, look at, look at this, this, these cool things these women are doing. Look at what they're achieving off the back of being a part-time athlete. Imagine if they were a full-time athlete, what they could achieve. Mm. So- do you right now just get your own cheerleaders? In other words, your own cheer squads listening to it, or you are you being able to break that podcast into broader groups? Yeah, it's it's actually grown a huge amount, which has been really cool. A lot of that has been through our social channels because I originally started it as a podcast because I wanted the storytelling element to be really powerful. I feel like coming back to that idea around newspaper articles and things like often if I flick to the back page and and look at the sports section, there's not a huge amount of stories about female athletes. So I wanted to start as a podcast to, to start in that storytelling space. And I think when you hear someone's story that one of my favorite parts of doing the podcast has been people saying, Hey, I listened to this athlete on your podcast, never heard of her before. Now I'm going to watch her in the world championships in Russia when she competes on TV. And I think that's really cool to get people invested in these athlete stories that probably for a male athlete, their stories have been spread across every media platform and everyone knows their name, their household names and things like that. But then we also notice this, there's a real gap in the market around just news and highlights of women's sport as well. I think the US is doing a lot, uh, a better job of that now, but I think in Australia, there's a real gap there. So that's why we wanted to start building the content we were creating on our social channels around when someone achieves something like give people really easy access to that information. And so we've seen really cool growth in that space. And so it's really expanded into much more than just the podcast. Do you think there's um, some friction or, or at least maybe, maybe reticence of a new audience because that audience thinks as though the channels, various channels that uh, show women in sport are doing it because that's the thing they should be doing? They, they should be putting a woman commentator on there. They should be putting women's g- games on there, or female sports on there. Not that I have come across. I think I find that one an interesting discussion because when you look at like diversity quotas and things like that, it's what is the right way to go about it? it do you put it in place so that women are given those opportunities or, or people of color are given those opportunities, whatever that looks like? And I don't really know the right answer. I think it probably comes back to providing the pathways and opportunities for them to be given that opportunity in the first place so that when they get to that level, they're the best person for the job regardless. Yeah. And I think 
I haven't had a lot of feedback around it being on free to air because that's the that's how it should be. I think what we've started to see and, and similar with some of that data that's coming out around broadcast numbers, even if you look at the Australian women's cricket team or, or, or the World Cup that they played in at the MCG with 86,000 people in the, in the grandstand, we're starting to see that these games are being put on and they're also being put on TV, but the numbers are actually growing as well. But do you think that um, the audience is saying, you know, women cricketers, it's okay, they're just playing cricket. Um, women playing AFL, well, that's different. Like uh, we just – we should only be men. Uh, because it gets, I, what, I guess why I'm saying that is because I, I reckon there'd be people who say that uh, would think, maybe they don't even think, but that there's something going on in their head where AFL being a, a physical sport, like a, a combative, nearly combative sort of sport, that only guys can do com- combat. And what do you think of the cap? Why, why do you think we're more interested in men's game than we are fem- uh, women's games in terms of, say, AFL, for example? Is it, what are the characteristics? If you look at it biologically, men are always going to be able to kick further, run faster, jump higher. You'll, you'll have some women that are obviously exceptional at those things, but, but biologically in terms of testosterone and yeah, a whole yeah, range yeah. of different factors, they're always going to have that edge. I think from a skill level perspective, it had probably come back to that idea that so many of my teammates were told at the age of 12, you, you have to stop playing now because you can't play with the boys and we don't have a girls team. So they kind of miss that window until they're 18 years old and then they start playing again. So I think that's going to always be a catch up until it can be full time and it's we've had enough time in the system to be elite at those skills and, and compete, not compete with the men, but get closer to that level of skill that they've got. Um, and I think probably another way that I look at it in terms of why people probably support the men, if I think back to being a little kid, like, if I wanted to watch my favourite women's sporting team on TV on a Friday, every Friday night, Saturday night, probably wouldn't be able to do that. Whereas I imagine, were you a Roosters fan as a kid? Like I yeah. imagine you would have been able to support was always them available. every single weekend. Mm. You'd read about them in the paper, the, the analysis so of access. the game. Access, I think, is a huge part of it. Because, well, I, I, I mean, I, I, I reveal something here, but like uh, I, I, I love those Viking movies, okay, a Viking series on, t- on Netflix. I, I just love them. I think they're fantastic. Especially all the you know all the combat and everything they have, and what's interesting is um, in all those uh, series there are women who actually are more interesting to watch as Vikings and and like you know in conflict like I'm talking about you know having battles they're more interesting to watch than the guys. In fact, every one of those women have the same skills as the guys, and you see them you know chopping up as many guys as the guys are doing to the guys too, and um, for me, I, I, I've sort of, I think there's no more, even though a man might be bigger, it's not skill that the woman might have, but there's just a way around all that for a female. And I just think it's because we're not used to it. We ha- we're not used to watching it and we don't know who the people are. They're not, they're not personalities. We're not saying watching Brad Fittler or, uh, you know, Gordon Tallis because they're household names. We don't have enough household names, but I think that, is starting to happen. Certainly in um, cricket, that's happening. Um, uh, in soccer, that's happening. Um, you know, when we uh, when we look at you know Australian women playing in the in the Australian soccer team, we end up playing for people like Chelsea and that, and scoring goals. They're friends like clubs like that. Um, 
they become household names and therefore it makes it much more interesting for me. Equally, if you said to me, oh, would you, do you want to go and watch uh, England play? Well, I don't know. I'm on the England side, male or female, so I'm probably not interested. Well, Mark, do you want to watch an NFL game? I don't, I'm not interested in it. I don't know who these individuals are. And I wonder if it's a bit more simple if we could start to highlight individuals in the female form to build personalities so we know who these individuals are. Yeah, I think that's a huge part of it. And that's a big driver in what I'm trying to do with my platform is create a place where people can actually learn their names and learn their stories and what they've achieved and why they deserve to be household names. I mean, like good example, Shane Warne, like apart from being, you know, a great cricketer, probably the greatest spin ball ever, but he has a big personality. Like it was something, the, the dude was out there. Um, and the media played it. Like the media used to give him a hard time, to be honest with you. Now all of a sudden they were in love with him. But I think the media is the problem. I, I don't think there's anything else. Look, you're going to get attitudes and you're going to get people who on social media will have a crack at you no matter what. I mean, I get people having you know, like It just happens all the time. I mean, it's some of the shit that I have to put up with. I don't read it. But like, you know, the cockroaches are all come out of the cupboard as soon as you start spraying. You know, they're, 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 they're always there and they're never going to go away. I think and I'm not here to solve your problem. I wouldn't even presume to do that, but the problem you're trying to solve. But I really think it's a big part of this is the media's lack of input. I actually think if the media started to support people like yourself or what you're doing and uh, started highlighting these individuals, that more of us will watch. It's pretty simple because the media is so powerful. Yeah. Yeah, I agree. And I sometimes feel frustrated that as an athlete, I'm having to do both. I. I love what I do, but I also feel frustrated that because the media doesn't do it, I spend hours and hours and hours of my week devoting time to this project to create these stories and to share these highlights, and it it shouldn't be my job. I just think that mainstream media hasn't done their job, I I think, and and the main reason for that is most of the media are male and they've got their favourites because that's what happens, and they're older male. And they build up their favourites or their go-to people. And you, by the way, they don't. They talk to their favourites all the time. So they actually, those male media people favour male favourites, but they don't talk to anybody else. By the way, they just so a lot of male sports people are frustrated too because they feel like they don't get any share of the paper because mm-hmm. these guys keep going back to the same people all the time. So I reckon there's got to be a turnover in there. I mean, we need someone like Katie Page to go and start running uh, News Corp and uh, say, hang on, we're going to change the whole venue here. You know, we're going to put a lot more female journalists, not put them in there because, oh, we should have diversity and we should have, you know, a, a night on Fox once a week where three females get up and talk about rugby league. You know, that, that's, to me, that is so um, tokenism obvious. I won't watch it. Let's get fair income female journalists there who maybe play the game or, or who know a lot about the game and get them to write articles and to, uh, you know, really get aggressive with it. No, I don't mean in a bad way, but like, you know, be really on the front foot about it, the whole organisation. I just think there's too much tokenism. Is that something that you're, you're reflected on? Because it's going to be hard for you to do it as one person, one voice. Mm. Yeah, and and as you're saying, it's, my frustration is with mainstream media, the fact that there's not a lot of coverage in that space. I think 
if we look at the rugby league example, we're, we're starting to see more women occupying that space. People like Rowan Sims, um, uh, Alana Ferguson, who does a lot of work in that space on TV, who know a huge amount about totally. the game and they speak really well and I think they do an exceptional job and it's working out, okay, they're really good at it and so they then get multiple roles. What's actually happening to support other players or ex-players or journalists who might be exceptional at that to allow them to get experience in that space and to occupy that space so that it's not tokenism. Yeah, because Rowan seems a good example. They, I feel like I'm not, not here to you know be critical of Channel 9 or Fox or whichever one she works for, but I feel like they just call her in, you know, and she was a good rugby league player. She played, she played for us, the Roosters. Um, she's a great rugby league player. She comes from a rugby league family, obviously. Um, she knows her stuff technically. I like listening to her. Um, you know, I like listening to her her commentary. She knows what she's talking about. Like similar like the way I like to listen to, um, you know, like Cooper Cronk. His commentary is sensible to me. Um, I I I don't see why we don't have we shouldn't have more of her and maybe less of the others. And that's going to come from the people at the top, the producers of these shows, who got to let go of this concept that. Well, the, the men who are listening to the show, watching the show, are going to get a bit pissed off if we give them too much female commentary. It's not the case. As long as the commentary is intelligent, makes sense, and comes from someone with a reputation, which they have to build, you know, the broadcaster has to build it for them, um, then there won't, there, there'll be no negative effect. I mean, and I think this can be applied to everything. As I said, maybe I'm but maybe I'm slightly different to everybody, but I don't have a logical reason why I don't want to watch a, watch a female in sport compared to a male. There's just, I just 100% don't have any logic there other than someone's been a star, been made a star. You know, there are Sonny Bill Williams yeah. style person. But there should be female Sonny Bill Williams equivalents too, by the way. Which I think someone like Sam Kerr Good example. is a great example of that. Like she can kick goals from anywhere. Like, like her athleticism is ridiculous. I've seen her sort of tip herself upside down and the ball's coming where like just drop her shoulders to the ground and kick the ball like that mm -hmm. uh, over the top of her head. And I think, wow, like, and more, but I still don't see enough about her. I don't see anyone putting a photograph of her on the front page of the Daily Telegraph do, doing that kick. Like just once a year, if it happens, once in a lifetime even be nice. I reckon more people more people would watch it or look at the Daily Telegraph and if that was the headline. Um, I have no sense of – I just don't understand it. I don't really understand it. That's why it's, I, it was a fantastic opportunity for me to get you here today um, and, you know, doing what you're doing, like your podcast. I think over time people like you, we need more of those podcasts, not just you but others similar to yourself. We just need to win the, the game by outnumbering the mainstream. There just needs to be hundreds of these where we have choices to go and look at hundreds of these things. And the more of you, if you could replicate yourself a hundred times over, that's sort of what we need to see. That's pretty hard to do. It's hard to do. <laughs> yeah. I'd like to do it. Yeah, yeah. But maybe over time younger, younger girls will see it and they say, look, I can do that. Just like you did, you know, when you walked into PLC when you were 15 or 16. And thought, wow, this is cool. 38 sides, 38 teams of basketballers. I can do that. Uh, you know, that's, I think, time, unfortunately, it's going to be very frustrating 
whilst we wait for the affliction of time for us to take on, or society, I think, to take on the principle that you're prosecuting really, really hard. Um, I've never really had an opportunity, Chloe, to talk to someone like this publicly, so um, I appreciate the opportunity, um, but I've never really had a opportunity to think it through either like I have been doing today. Mm. And uh, you've changed my well, – you haven't changed my way of thinking. You all felt me find my right, the direction that I, that I would like to be thinking. Maybe I thought instinctively a bit now I understand my logic on it. So I guess the more people listen to you, the quicker we'll convert the way we all think. Chloe, thanks very much. Thank you very much for having me. And, I yeah, I really appreciate that. I think, yeah, it's the willingness, but your willingness to ask questions and to learn. And from hearing my story, you, you learn and understand more, and I think it's really powerful. That's 100% best summary of what just happened. I feel like you interviewed my brain. <laughs> Good. I'm glad that's what we were here for. Whose podcast is this? Mine or yours? Fuck. It's still in the mic over here. Cool. <laughs> Thanks for listening to another episode of Straight Talk with Mark Boris. Audio and production is by Jessica Smalley. Production assistants, Jonathan Leondis. This is a mentored podcast. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market.